Again, we're going to be looking most especially at verses 13 and 14 this morning, and you see that, you know, from verses 11 to 14 in particular, there is this theme of standing and resisting. As I thought about this morning, I thought about a way to introduce the sermon. I was reminded of what Martin Luther did as he stood before the Holy Roman Emperor in 1521. Really, this picture of Martin Luther standing before Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, kind of all alone, is one of the defining pictures in church history. So on October 31st in 1517, Martin Luther, he nailed 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church in Wittenberg, Germany, and those theses were really points for debate. He was an academic, and he was concerned about what he was seeing in terms of the Roman Catholic Church coming into Germany and selling indulgences, which in many ways amounted to paying money so that you could sin and get out of hell or help others get out of hell by paying money. And Luther didn't see anything in the Bible about that, and he was concerned about that and other matters. And so he posted these theses to the door, and from that, he really really kind of set off a reformation throughout Germany, throughout much of Europe as well, as many became Christians following the true gospel. And so Luther became famous, and he boldly preached God's word. And then he used his writing ministry as well in order to proclaim the gospel. But despite all of his success, Luther's ministry was quite dangerous. And it really came to the head in 1521 when he was summoned before the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. Charles V had been really kind of commanded by the Pope of the time to do this. And the Holy Roman Empire called him, or the Emperor called Luther to this diet, the Diet of Worms there, April 17, 1521. And when Luther arrived, he thought he would be involved in debate, you know, studying God's Word and thinking about this. But he was informed that the only thing the Emperor wanted him to do was recant to turn away from his teaching and to proclaim that what he'd been teaching was false. And most people there expected that no matter what Luther did, he'd be burned at the stake. This was no small test. This is really an amazing thing for one little monk to stand before one of the most powerful men in the world, and really the kind of the entire weight of the Roman Catholic Church, and been given this ultimatum that he must recant of his teaching of the gospel. But despite the incredible pressure, Luther did not recant. He didn't turn his back on the gospel. This is what he said as he refused to yield, as he resisted this. He said, Since then your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God, and I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. God help me. Amen. So he's facing this overwhelming pressure, but in that moment he did not yield. Instead, he resisted, he fought, he stood. And I remind you of this scene of church history this morning because I think it's a great picture of what all of us as followers of Jesus are called to do. Martin Luther was called to stand before the Holy Roman Empire and refuse to yield. He was to resist. We also have this same mission. We are to stand against the onslaught of Satan and his demons, and we are to resist. We're not to yield. We're to fight. That's what the Bible calls us to do. And this is spiritual warfare. We are called to be bold. We are called to, to fight the good fight of the faith, and we're called to use the spiritual resources that God has given us. And that's what we're going to be studying this morning as we continue to look at spiritual warfare. So you know, if you're just visiting with us this morning, we've been going through the book of Ephesians. We're continuing that study. And of course, now we're, we're at the end of the book. 
Now, the Apostle Paul has written this magnificent letter for us, and in this letter, he's really kind of unpacked in the first three chapters God's plan for history in Christ, God's plan of redemption, what he is doing in Christ. And in Christ, God is creating a new people, his church, who would bring him glory and who would be a distinct people, would be a holy people, would be a, a new people in the earth. And so from Ephesians 4 until where we are now, really through the end of the book, Paul has been unpacking for us what difference that should make how we should live. Really, the phrase he uses is how we should walk as those who follow Jesus. How do we walk worthy of the great calling with which we've been called? And last week, we said that the kind of the, the foremost thing on his mind as he wrapped up this letter was this idea of spiritual warfare, spiritual conflict that we're involved in. Because while it may seem easy to follow the instructions we've been given in Ephesians, we find when we try to walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called, that it's difficult. There's sin within that trips us up, and we have an enemy on the outside who's fighting against us as well. And so it's difficult. It's difficult for us to follow. And so Paul wants to explain that to these Ephesian believers. And of course, because God's word is timeless, he's explaining it to us as well. Why is it so hard to follow Jesus? Well, brothers and sisters, it's because we're at war and because it's a fight and because it's difficult. But the hopeful thing about this passage is we have been given every resource we need to fight and to fight well. That's what Paul's unpacking here. This is what we're really going to be getting into later on in the sermon this morning as we begin to look at the armor of God and look at that in detail. Last week, we looked at verses 10 to 12. We saw that believers had been given God's power and what Paul called the armor of God. This morning, we're looking at verses 13 and 14. We see that Paul commands these believers and us to stand against Satan. The idea is to fight against Satan, and he begins to detail for us the spiritual armor, spiritual resources that God has given us so that we can fight well. If you're taking notes this morning, we have two points for the sermon. Two points. Our first point will be two responsibilities in spiritual warfare. We'll see that in verses 13 and the first part of verse 14. Two responsibilities in spiritual warfare. And then we're going to see two pieces of armor for spiritual warfare. Two pieces of armor as we begin to look at those. And we'll see that in the second part of verse 14. Let's look at that first point together then. Look at this first point. Two responsibilities in spiritual warfare. Look again at your copy of God's Word. Look with me at verse 13, and we'll read through the first part of verse 14 again. There Paul says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore. Anytime you're studying God's Word and you come to a therefore, you need to ask yourself the question, what's the therefore, therefore? And what is there for is to point us back to what Paul has just said in verse 12, where Paul described the power and organization of our spiritual enemies. Satan and his demons are powerful. And so we need to consider that. We need to consider that we are up against those who are strong. And that's why Paul, in this verse, verse 13, in the first part of verse 14, he repeats this exhortation to take up the whole armor of God. And the idea is so that we can stand against these spiritual enemies. Now, if you look at this passage, you're going to see that Paul gives two commands, two commands to these Ephesian believers and to us. The first command is take up the whole armor of God, and the second command is stand therefore. And from these two commands, we learn two responsibilities that we have as we seek to follow God, as we seek to really engage in the spiritual warfare. We must use the armor of God. We must use the armor of God. 
And second, we must stand and fight. Let's look at that first responsibility. In spiritual warfare, we must use the armor of God. That's what Paul says in the first part of verse 13 when he says, take up the whole armor of God. So here, as we talked about this last week, we said that the armor of God are spiritual resources that God has given the believers that enable them to fight against Satan and our spiritual enemies, other fallen angels as well. And we said that these This armor itself, these resources include things like truth and righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, and the word of God. Now, why should we use the armor? Well, we've already said it, but Paul spells it out for us there in verse 13. He says, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. So this armor is given to us so that we can withstand Satan. Apart from it, we're not able to. He's too powerful. And if we're not using the armor that God has given us, we will fail in the battle. But with the armor, if we put it on, which is really what Paul says by having done all, the idea is preparing yourself for battle by using this armor, well, then we're able to stand firm against Satan. Did you notice that Paul says that we're to stand firm in the evil day? So when is the evil day? When is the evil day? Some commentators say that it's, you know, particularly difficult times in the life of a believer. Hard times when we're under extra intense temptation and trial. But I don't think that's really what Paul's getting at. The evil day there really speaks of this present age, which the Bible also calls an evil age. We're now living in a time when Satan and his fallen angels are controlling, running at work in this world to accomplish their purposes. And so, in a very real way, we are living on enemy ground, fighting on enemy ground right now. And so, over and over, as we face Satan's attack, we have to be using the armor of God. We have to be using this resource that God has given us, and we need to keep using it all throughout our life. So that's the first responsibility you see. You have to take up the armor of God. There's a second responsibility. We must stand. So look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. You're going to see the word stand there once. He speaks of standing there, and then he speaks of standing twice in verse 13. And then, again, he gives us this command in verse 14, stand therefore. So four times in four verses, Paul gives us the the command, the exhortation that we are to be standing, resisting, fighting, and that's a lot of repetition. And that's another thing to understand when you study God's Word is when you see things repeated over and over. It's being emphasized for us how important this is. And the idea, brothers and sisters, is that we must fight. We can't be passive as we live the Christian life. We must engage. We must fight. So God has given us his omnipotent power. We have that resource. And God has given us this spiritual armor that we're going to describe and discuss. But we have the responsibility of taking up the armor and using it. And we also have the responsibility to stand and to fight, to engage in spiritual battle against our spiritual enemies. Again, there's no such thing in the Christian life as letting go and letting God. We have this responsibility. So standing is what Paul did. If you've read through 2 Timothy, you know at the very end, he says that he had to stand before Nero all alone, but God stood with him. God helped him. God strengthened him. Standing is what Paul did when he stood before Nero and defended the gospel ministry. And standing is what Martin Luther did when he stood before Charles V at the Diet of Worms, and he defended the gospel. And we've also been called to stand. So brothers and sisters, we've been called to put to death, you know, the besetting sins that just seek to trip us up over and over. We, we can't play with those. We can't make excuses for them. 
We have to put them to death. We have to fight against them. We've been called to resist temptation, believing that Jesus is greater treasure than anything this world sends our way. We've been called to persevere by faith in the midst of adversity. A lot of us have experienced a lot of adversity this year, haven't we? Well, what we're called to do is to persevere, to keep pressing on towards heaven. Yeah, we've been called to proclaim the gospel to the lost so that they might be set free from their slavery to sin and to Satan. And we've been called to make disciples, helping others grow in their relationship with Jesus so that they could engage in the spiritual warfare as well. All of this and much more is is standing. It's resisting. It's fighting. It's not giving up. It's being used of God in this way. So here are these two responsibilities. We've got to take up the armor of God, and we must stand. So let me just ask you two questions about engaging in spiritual warfare before we move on. What will keep us from engaging in spiritual warfare? What will keep us from engaging in, engaging in spiritual warfare? There's so many different things we can say, but one thing came to mind, and that's this. It's spiritual apathy. It's just being apathetic. It's just being unconcerned, and I've seen it quite a bit. So spiritual apathy keeps many professing Christians from engaging. So you come to church, and you hear this message that you're called to be involved in this, this cosmic struggle, really, this great battle. You hear that you're a soldier for Christ, and we're reminded that we need to take up and use the armor of God. You hear that, and yet, for whatever reason, many people hear that message, and it never seems to sink in. They don't seem to care. They're apathetic, and so they don't engage. They just continue kind of going through the motions in their Christian life. Why is that? Well, for some people, the reason for some people is this, that they aren't actually Christians at all. You know, perhaps they grew up in a church. You know, perhaps they prayed a prayer when they were a small child. Perhaps they've just always been a religiously minded person that likes to be around other religious people. But they're not really born again. They don't really possess the Spirit of God. They're Christiany, but they're not Christians. You know, they may be religious, but they don't really have a saving relationship with God through Christ. And so there's no love, there's no passion, there's no zeal, there's no fight within. Why? Because they're, they're lacking the spiritual life they need to even engage. But then there's another problem, and this is for believers. This is for those who've been born again, for those who have a relationship with God. Some of us, we've just simply grieved the Holy Spirit in the way that we've been living. So perhaps it's this besetting sin. Perhaps we've just kind of given ourselves to a particular sin. It might be you know, pornography or something. Perhaps they've given into bitterness or we've given into a lack of forgiveness. Perhaps we've simply been neglecting time with God. You know, Satan just got us thinking that other things are more important. Other things are more essential to our day. And so we neglect spending time with God and his word and we neglect prayer. And we grieve the Spirit of God, and we, we lack that spiritual resource, the power we need to live for God, and so we are apathetic. Well, what should you do? If you find yourself there this morning, the thing to do is to repent. It's to turn from that. It's to believe the gospel again. It's to believe the good news that God loves you in Christ, and it's to press on. You know, perhaps it's a good day for you to talk with someone else, a brother or sister in the Lord that you trust, and talk with them about your life and have them encourage you and pray for you that you would be more engaged and that you would be fighting, serving well. Here's a second question. I hope this one will be an encouragement. What will encourage us as we engage? And I actually found a lot of 
encouragement in this verse when it talked about us fighting in the evil day. And you say, well, what's encouraged about fighting in the evil day? It's this, the evil day doesn't last forever. We're called to fight now while we live in this life, this world, but that doesn't last forever. Maybe it's 20 years that we're called to fight. Maybe it's a hundred years that we're called to fight, but the evil day will come to an end. And the message of the Bible is that there is a new and glorious world that's ahead of us. And in that world, there will be no more conflict. You know, we talked about the victory that Christ won for us last week. So now we're fighting in light of this victory. And we're fighting in light of the fact that what lies before us is this glorious world where we will be with Christ forever. It should strengthen us to fight and press on and persevere and do our best to follow the Lord. So a few more days, a few more years, and we will be with Jesus. And the battle will be over. So don't give up. Don't quit. Keep fighting. You know, in the life of our church, we recently sent two of our members on ahead of us to heaven. So Dick Green and Mickey Holcomb have both finished their warfare you know, they did. They fought well. They fought well. They resisted the devil. They, they slew their sins. They ministered to others. They testified to God's grace, and each one, did it, each one did it well. But now their fight is done, and they're victorious. They're standing even now in the presence of God. God has seen them through the battle, and here's the thing. God will see us through the battle as well. That's where the hope is. It's not in our ability to save ourselves. It's in God who keeps us and perseveres us. I love what J.C. Ryle said about this. He said, let us remember that thousands of soldiers before us have fought the same battle that we are fighting and come off more than conquerors through him that loved them. They overcame by the blood of the lamb, and so also may we. Christ's arm is quite as strong as ever, and Christ's heart is just as loving as ever. He that saved men and women before us is one who never changes. He is able to save to the uttermost all who come unto God by him. Then let us cast away doubts and fears and let us follow them who through faith and patience inherit the promise and are waiting for us to join them. Two responsibilities that we've been given. We're to take up the armor of God and we're to stand. And now let's look at the armor more closely. Let's begin to study what are these resources that God has given us. So two pieces of armor, two pieces of armor for spiritual warfare. Look at the second part of verse 14. Paul says, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So here we come to this detailed description of the spiritual warfare or the spiritual resources that God has given us for the fight, this armor of God. But before we dive in, I want us just to kind of think about this armor a little bit more generally. I want us to make a few general observations before we look at each individual pieces. First, notice that God has given us six pieces of armor. There are six here that are listed. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shoes which are the readiness given by the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And as you look at it, it's very clear again that what Paul's doing and giving us this picture of armor is he's, he's making a, an analogy for us to help us understand the resources that God has given to us so that we can fight. These are analogies. So in some way, we can think of truth as like a belt. We can think of righteousness as like a breastplate. We can think of 
The gospel is like shoes. A faith is like a shield. Of salvation is like a helmet, or the word of God is like a sword. And we're supposed to think about these analogies, and we're supposed to draw truths from them that will help us understand and fight well. But there is a, a danger. We need to keep in mind that this is not an allegory. We, we can't press this too far. We can't try to look at every possible detail everywhere and try to come up with secret insights into spiritual warfare. For instance, uh, over the centuries, really, many commentators and pastors even have taught that Paul didn't give us any armor for our backs. And so the idea is that when we fight, we must never turn our back on the enemy. We must fight boldly. We must never flee. Now, that's true. We never want to flee from Satan. That's true. But the problem is that the Roman breastplate actually most often did cover the front and the back of the soldier. And so Paul isn't you know, actually teaching us that true thing from this passage. The point is that we need to be careful. Remember that these are analogies and learn good things, but then not press the details too much because we want to be accurate in the way that we understand God's word. Here's the last thing I want us to say before we dive in. We receive the armor at the moment of salvation, but we must use the armor throughout our lives. So at the moment of salvation, we receive the knowledge of the truth. We receive the righteousness of Christ, the gospel, faith, salvation, the ability to understand and use God's word. All of these resources are given to us as believers, but then our, responsible, our responsibility throughout our lives is to use them as we fight against our spiritual enemies. Now, with those observations in mind, let's dive in and let's look at this first piece of armor there, the belt of truth. So look at what Paul says in kind of the middle of verse 14. He says, having fastened on the belt of truth. Now, in our day, we use our belts, you know, really to kind of hold up our pants or keep our shirts nicely tucked into our outfit. In many ways, belts become, you know, a little more than an accessory, maybe a fashion statement for us. But it was different for Roman soldiers because the basic garment that Roman soldiers wore was a tunic, which was kind of a, a large sheet of cloth with holes cut out for the head and for the arms that would kind of flow over them and fall down. And so if it wasn't in any way secured, it could very easily trip them up. It could hinder them in what they needed to do, whether that was marching for battle or actually fighting in battle. And so they were given this leather belt, and the purpose of the leather belt was to enable them to move quickly because they would gird up this tunic into the belt so that they would be more free and able to move and able to run and able to fight. And at the same time, the belt served as a, an instrument that would kind of brace them for battle. Tighten it up, they would cinch it up, they'd have their sword in place, and they would feel like they are ready to go into battle. And that is what truth does for the believer. It frees us up to fight unimpeded, and it really braces us. It really gives us a sense of security. As we go into a confusing world, it gives us a sense of security to know that we know the truth as God has revealed the truth. Here's the question, what does this word truth reveal, what does it refer to? So many people look at the word truth there, and they think that it's speaking specifically of the word of God, and you know, it's the Bible, and of course the Bible is truth, it's God's truth, but it can't be the Bible that he's talking about here, why not? Because later on in verse 17, we're told to take up the sword of the Spirit, which Paul specifically says is the word of God. So Paul is not telling us to take up the Bible twice. So this word truth must mean something a little bit different than the word of God, though it certainly includes the word of God. Other people think of this word truth and they think that it means honesty. 
integrity. It's living a life that's marked by truth. And so the idea is part of our spiritual warfare is to go into this world and we fight spiritual battles using our honesty and our truthfulness. Our lives matter in that way. And I, I think that's true. Part of our spiritual warfare is that we would live honest and upright lives. But I don't think that that's Paul's main emphasis in telling these believers to take up the belt of truth. So what is this belt of truth? I think Paul is speaking more generally of what you might call objective truth or capital T truth. In other words, Christians need to think about the world the same way that God thinks about the world. Listen to this. Truth is an understanding of reality that is reliable and trustworthy as opposed to false and deceptive. This involves knowing the truth that God has revealed in his word because his word is truth that casts judgments on other truth claims, but it also involves understanding what is true and what is false in the world around us. In short, truth is seeing reality the way God sees reality. Truth is seeing reality the way God sees it. So when we put on the belt of truth, we're girding our minds to think like God thinks, and that's so vital. Why? Because who is Satan? Well, he's the father of lies, and he comes at us with his lies, And the only way we're going to be able to react and fight against his lies is if we know the truth, the truth of Scripture, and then just having this right understanding of the world that is informed by God's word. It's only as we know the truth that we can counteract those lies. So it's been said that we become vulnerable to Satan's lies if we don't know who God is. And if we don't know who we are, And if we don't know what God has called us to do, but if we know who God is and we know who we are and we know what God has called us to do, well, now we're prepared by the truth to fight. So just as the belt freed up the Roman soldier to move quickly and to fight well, so the belt of truth, it frees up Christians to perceive rightly the lies of the enemy and to respond in the right way. Just as the belt braced the Roman soldier for battle, so the belt of truth braces the Christian to withstand the lies of Satan in this world. Now, what are some of the lies that we're faced with? They're really endless, aren't they? Uh, There's all kinds of deception out there in the world. Let me give you just two lies that are so dominant in our day, and they're they're not new lies. They've been around for a long time, but we're still hearing them, and we hear them all the time in our culture. The first is hedonism. What is hedonism? Well, it's just pursuing pleasure, pursuing happiness. It's making yourself as happy as you can in this life. Why? Because we only live once. And there seems to be a wisdom in that. Why? Because this life is the only life that we've ever experienced. And so it seems to make sense that we'd want to make ourselves as happy as we possibly could in this life. But here's the thing. God's word teaches that there is life after this life. You see, there's truth here. It's not just this brief life, and we're just trying to make ourselves happy. No, there's actually eternity before us, and we're going to one day stand before God and give an account for the way that we have lived this life, whether we've lived it according to God's truth or not, whether we've walked in a way that pleases God or not. And so wisdom, truth comes in and says, the way to live well is not to make yourself as happy as possible as if life is all about you, but instead to invest your life in eternity. Invest your life in things that will bring glory to God because, listen, as a believer, you'll find your joy there and you'll find your joy forever with Christ following him. 
And so truth answers this lie that we're supposed to be living for ourselves and making ourselves as happy as possible in this kind of self-focused way. Instead, we're freed up. No, actually, we want to find our joy in this life by serving the Lord and loving others, looking forward to being with our Savior forever. There's another lie. It's relativism. This is everywhere, of course. It's the idea that there is no absolute truth. They're just perspectives. They're just opinions. So what's true for you you know, it may not be true for me. What's true for me may not be true for you. So you're free to believe what you want to believe, but you're not free to tell me what I should believe. And ironically, relativism, which says there is no truth, has to use an absolute truth claim to do that by saying there is no absolute truth. They use this absolute claim to make the point. But God's Word teaches that, that God is a source of truth. And what that means, brothers and sisters, is that there is an infallible perspective on reality. And it's not my perspective, and it's not your perspective, but there is a person, God, who sees all things, and he sees all things well. And my understanding of truth and your understanding of truth, it's judged not based on what I think or you think, but on what God thinks about any particular matter. And God has given us his word to guide us, because his word is truth, so that we can understand what is true and what is not true what is good and what is false, what is beautiful and what is ugly. And we're constantly challenged in all of those points as we live in this world. So in spiritual warfare, Satan comes with these lies and he comes with many others, but it's the belt of truth, thinking as God thinks, understanding reality the way God understands reality that equips us to fight against his lies. That's why we use this belt of truth. Now there's a second piece of armor. Look again, kind of at the end of verse 14. The breastplate of righteousness. Paul says there, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So what is a, a breastplate? We fortunately don't have to use those much in our day, but in Paul's day in the first century, Roman soldiers, they had a, a breastplate, which was really kind of a really tough piece of leather or even metal. And it was shaped and designed to conform to the torso of the soldier. It conformed to his body. And the purpose of the breastplate was to protect him in his core, to protect all of the vital organs so that he was not killed in the midst of battle. Now, in the ancient world, they thought a little bit differently than we do about kind of the center of our personality, the center of who we are. So in the ancient world, the heart was considered the, the seat of one's personality. It was where the soul was found. It was where the mind was found. And, and really, the intestines were where the emotions were found. And so when Paul talks about this breastplate of righteousness, he's talking about a righteousness that protects us uh, for who we truly are within, protects our inner person, protects our mind, protects our conscience, protects our will, protects our desires. So we need this righteousness that can protect us for who we really are within. So what does Paul mean by righteousness? Well, some people look at that word righteousness, and again, they think it's acts of righteousness that we're called to do. And I think that's partially true. God does want us to be righteous people as we live in this world and as we engage in spiritual warfare. But I don't think that that's what Paul really has in mind here. And here's why. Because our acts of righteousness are never enough. You and I seek to do good things. You and I seek to live in a way that's pleasing to God. We want to honor him. And yet over and over and over, we fail to live the way we want to live. And so if we are going into spiritual battle and Satan approaches us and we say, hey, Satan, look at the righteous deeds that I have done. 
What can Satan do? Well, he can say, but you know what? You did this also, and you committed this sin. And hey, even when you did that good thing, you did that good thing just so that other people would look at you and see you do that good thing. He could come to us. He can point out unrighteousness in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions. And here's the thing about Satan. When it comes to our righteousness, he would be absolutely right. Because our very best acts, they're still kind of dragged down by sin that is within. If our best acts of righteousness were what we had to use in spiritual warfare, we'd be in trouble. Here's the good news. We have a better righteousness. We have a perfect righteousness. That's what Paul talks about. Paul talks about a better righteousness, a righteousness that's able to defend us from all the attacks of the enemy. So listen as I read how Paul describes this righteousness from Philippians 3, verses 8 and 9. Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then listen to 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So here, the righteousness we need to fight against Satan is not ultimately our acts of righteousness, but no, we've been given this breastplate of righteousness, and this breastplate of righteousness is nothing less than the perfect righteousness of Christ that has been imputed to everyone who follows Jesus. This is so important to keep in mind, and here's why. As you live your Christian life, one of Satan's most potent tools is accusation. He will come against you and he will accuse you of things, things that you have done. He'll come along and say that we're guilty of sin and we'll remember that we actually have sinned. He'll come along and he'll say that we're dirty and we'll remember that actually in many ways we've done dirty things. He'll come along and say that we're shameful and we'll remember times of profound shame in our lives. So what answer can we give Satan when he comes along and attacks us and attacks our righteousness, when we try to point to him and say, well, but I did this, or I served the Lord at church, or I cared for that person, what is Satan going to do? He's going to come back and say, well, you also did this, and you also did this, and you sinned in this way. And he's also going to say, and yeah, you know, at the very bottom of everything you do at church, seems like you really often want other people to notice and approve of you. Here's the thing. We cannot counteract the accusations of Satan based on our best efforts. They're not good enough, but we don't have to because we've been given the breastplate of righteousness, which is the perfect righteousness of Christ. So what do we do when Satan comes and he begins to throw the darts of discouragement and he's seeking to dishearten us and he's telling us all the things that we've done wrong? What are we to do? Well, we are to take up the breastplate of righteousness and we're to say, you know what? You're right about me. I am a sinner, but Jesus died for sinners. And his perfect righteousness now covers me. And God doesn't look at me on the basis of what I've done. God looks at me on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done in living this perfect life in my place. And now, by his grace, I intend to live like who I am in Christ. And here's the thing. Satan can say nothing to that. 
Satan has no answer for the righteousness of Christ. If you came into church this morning and you're feeling down, you're feeling discouraged, you're feeling disheartened because of struggle with sin, this is when you point to the breastplate of righteousness, you point Satan to the breastplate, and you say, Christ is my righteousness. It's a wonderful piece of armor we've been given. Brothers and sisters, it's a wonderful piece of armor that we have been given. So friend, listening to the sermon, do you understand what we're talking about? You know, many people, they come into church and they think that you know, Christians are people who believe that God is a kind person, that you know, wants us to be nice to one another, and as long as we're nice, then things are going to be okay. But actually, we don't believe that at all. We don't believe that. Of course, God is kind. But he's also holy, and here's the problem. In and of ourselves, we're not holy. And so in and of ourselves, we lack the righteousness we need to stand before God. And so in and of ourselves, there's no way that we can be good enough to stand before God and be accepted by God. But here's the good news of Christianity. Here's the most important thing for you to hear this morning. There is a way to be perfectly righteous, and it has nothing to do with trying harder and being better and cleaning yourself up. No, righteousness is a gift that God gives broken sinners like us, and it comes through Christ. You know, the gospel is that God created us to love him and to serve him. We're supposed to, to have a relationship with him that would be deep and significant, marked by obedience and joy and love. But our first parents, they rebelled against God in the garden. They decided to be better to live for themselves and to live for him. And we sinned in them, and because we come from them, well, we've all inherited that same tendency of rebellion against God and a desire to kind of live for ourselves. And so we have sinned against God. We failed to live according to his word and we failed to love other people as well. And the Bible says because God is holy and we're not holy, there's absolutely no way for us to stand before this God and be accepted. It seems like bad news, and indeed it is bad news. But here's the thing. There's glorious good news, and it's the gospel. That word gospel simply means good news. And the good news is that God himself has done what we could not do. The eternal Son of God came into this world. Jesus Christ, he lived the perfect life. He was perfectly righteous. Why did Jesus come? He did not need righteousness. He was God, but we needed righteousness. And so he came to live the kind of life that we should have lived. And then when the time was right, he laid down his life on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners. He died, bearing in himself the wrath of God against the sins of all who will turn from their sins and trust in him. He died, but then he rose from the dead. And now the good news of the Bible is that if you will turn from your sins and put your trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone, well, he'll be your savior all your sins will be forgiven. All of them, past, present, future sins, will all be forgiven. And God will look at you as if you lived Jesus's perfect life. That, friend, is the way to be righteous. It's not by being a better person. It's by trusting in Jesus and hoping in Jesus. Come to Jesus and let Jesus make you into a better person. That's his job. That's what he does. And those of us who have received that righteousness from Christ were given a new nature, and that new nature desires to walk righteously, desires to do what's right, and God helps us by his grace. He helps us to do that. So, friend, that's how you get the breastplate of righteousness this morning. It's by trusting in Jesus. If you haven't done that, I'd urge you to do that this morning. Don't wait. Do that this morning. Pray and ask God to save you and ask God to grant you this free gift of righteousness. And if you want to talk with someone about that, I know I'd love to talk with you, and there are many sitting here this morning and outside who would love to talk with you about how you can be perfectly righteous in Christ. 
Well, we have talked about a lot this morning as we've considered spiritual warfare. We've been reminded of our need to put on the armor of God and to stand against Satan. And we've learned now about the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. And Lord willing, next week we're going to continue to study through this passage and learn more about this armor that God has given us. Let's go to our God in prayer and thank him for his word. Let's pray.